0: Okay, thank you for bearing with us. Uh, My name is Walter Olson. I'm with the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. Um, Welcome to those who are watching later on at cato.org slash events where this should be posted. Uh, Welcome to those who are contributing via Twitter hashtag uh, CatoCD2013 or just CatoCD13. Uh, Let me warn you at this point: Do not, whatever you do, do not go onto the hashtag CatoCD without any numbers afterward. I did this. It turns out that Twitter does not interpret that as Cato Constitution Day. It interprets it as Cat OCD. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <and> so, <laughs> And so you will find the, the most amusing illustrations of cat behavior. I, I was on it for 10 minutes. <laughs> but, so do, do, do not go there. Um, I, I am hoping that we can make our discussion of patent law and class actions almost as entertaining as cat videos today. Um, the... So, The Supreme Court uh, took on a couple of cases in the last term on uh, patents on biological uh, things and activities. Uh, It also handed down a couple of decisions on class actions, which we in the legal biz think of as if they were biological entities. Uh, They (coughs) don't behave like standard objects whose behavior can be predicted. They're more like OCD cats, class actions are. But... um, Joining me will be uh, a very distinguished panel, and uh, in the following order, the first will be Professor David Olson. That is not how it appears in your program, but I get to decide the order, and my rule is that those with the surname Olson go first. Um, (laughs) Professor Professor Olson uh, has a JD from Harvard. He clerked for uh, my old friend Jerry Smith on the Fifth Circuit. Uh, He practiced as a patent litigator at the law firm of Kirkland and Ellis, uh, a much feared litigation law firm, uh, and was also at the Stanford Law School's famous Center for Internet Society. He is now an associate professor at Boston College Law School, where he teaches patents, international property, and antitrust law. Uh, Following him will be Professor Gregory Dolan. Uh, All three of our panelists, in fact, were were litigators and law professors both. Uh, Professor Dolan is both a JD and an MD. He is a JD from Georgetown and an MD from SUNY Stony Brook. Uh, He has clerked both for the Honorable Pauline Newman at the Federal Circuit and for the late uh, Emery Widener at the Fourth Circuit. Uh, He's been a John M. Olin Fellow in Law at Northwestern and an Associate in IP at Kramer Levin Naftalis. Uh, and he is currently a law professor at the University of Baltimore Law School and co-director of the Center for Medicine and Law, a partnership with the famed School of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Uh, uh, finally, we will have a homecoming for our valued colleague, Mark Muller, who was the very first editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Uh, he was... <coughs> a senior fellow at the Cato Institute's uh, Center for Constitutional Studies and oversaw Cato's uh, Supreme Court amicus program. Naturally, it's been downhill since then. Um, uh, He had to go on and be a litigator at Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher, where he... um, uh, It was on the team that successfully litigated Bush versus Gore. Actually, I guess that was before Cato. But um, he decided to uh, join academia in uh, full force and is now an associate law professor at DePaul, uh, where he teaches and writes in civil procedure and complex litigation. Uh, Please join me in welcoming first Professor David Olson.
1: Thank you, and I'm I'm glad to be here and uh, honored to be part of this event. Uh, However, I probably would have said no uh, had I known that that I would be compared in entertainment value to cats on YouTube. I'm afraid we are unlikely to meet that high bar. We'll do the best we can anyway with um, things like mutant uh, soybeans and uh, companies owning patents on, on the very genes in your body. So I'll, I'll try to make it sound dramatic, um, although you'll see that's not quite what the cases actually are that we're going to discuss. So Greg and I are going to discuss the two cases, uh, Monsanto case and uh, what's colloquially known as the Myriad case, the Association for Molecular Pathology versus UPT, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. I'm going to start by talking about the Monsanto case. Uh, in this case, you had Monsanto uh, sue uh, lone farmer Bowman, who uh, for infringing on Monsanto's patents for Roundup Ready soybeans. So, for those of you not in the know already, Roundup Ready soybeans are soybeans that have been genetically altered so that um, they will grow, and if you uh, spray an herbicide, a certain herbicide on them. Uh, that's found in Roundup as many as well as many other herbicides, it will resist that and will not die, but everything else around it dies. So um, and then you can harvest all those soybeans and ship it off to consumers to eat uh, with the Roundup, uh, hopefully, you know, washed off at some point along the way. So so, um, this has been a great innovation in uh, farming. And Almost everyone now uses Roundup Ready soybeans because it's just so much more efficient than having weeds and lots of other things grow up and have to sort that out from your soybeans. Uh, And indeed, uh, Mr. Bowman wanted to use Roundup Ready soybeans and bought some, uh, planted his crops, harvested, and then he came up with a great idea. Instead of going and buying the next season's soybeans from an authorized Monsanto dealer, he um, decided to go to his local co-op and buy seeds from the co-op. Why is this? The authorized Monsanto dealers sell the seeds with a license. The license allows the use of uh, the the seeds to plant and uh, bring to uh, harvest one generation of the soybeans, and then you have to sell those soybeans off um, for commodity use or use them yourself, that sort of thing. But you can't replant the soybeans. Uh, To get around this, Mr. Bowman bought from his local co-op, planted soybeans. The co-ops only sell for... uh, commodity use, but they don't kind of watch what you do and restrict it, but they're, they're governed by different regulations because they uh, sell generally for commodity use. So he bought these soybeans, planted them, sprayed with Roundup, and lo and behold, the soybeans that lived were Roundup resistant and everything else died. When these soybeans then grew up, he took the seeds, uh, replanted some of them, and in that way was able to have his own stock of Roundup resistant soybeans Uh, And he went on with that for seven or eight generations before Monsanto caught wind of what he was doing and sued him. So the issue queued up in this case was, can Monsanto sue successfully or would Bowman's defense of patent exhaustion win the day? Uh, In a rather, I guess, uh, anticlimactic opinion and and much expected uh, opinion, Bowman lost. He had an argument that uh, Monsanto had exhausted its patent rights when it sold him the seeds in the first place and that for self-replicating technology, like plants that grow new seeds, uh, that the patent exhaustion doctrine should work to prohibit uh, uh, collecting any more fees or licenses for successive generations. The court made short work of this argument. Uh, the, it talked about the patent exhaustion doctrine briefly. This is an equitable doctrine that has grown up. In it, the court generally follows the approach of, of being... Um, Uh, being skeptical of restraints on alienation. And so a typical patent exhaustion case will be something like when uh, you sell, say, a patented mousetrap to a consumer, if the consumer wants to resell that mousetrap to his neighbor, uh, courts have said historically that the doctrine of patent exhaustion will stop a patent owner from coming in at that point and saying, wait, now someone new is making use of the patented invention. And since the patent right gives me the right, to control use or sale or making the invention, I can come get another license fee here. Courts have said, no, you have to collect all your money up front. Um, The court kind of narrowed or, you know, focused on a narrow question in this case, which was simply, uh, is a next generation of a soybean plant a new patented plant? And the the answer to that is fairly obvious. Yes, said the court. So the next generation plant is new. Therefore, uh, it's an... it was Bowman making a new patented plant, planted invention. And this is clearly contravenes the patent statute. So said the court uh, in a unanimous decision, uh, Bowman was liable and that, and that's that. So uh, I think what Monsanto is more notable for are the hard questions in patent exhaustion versus contract law that it doesn't answer whatsoever. And that will remain unanswered until, you know, some future case Uh in 2008, the Supreme Court decided the case of uh, Quanta L.G. versus Quanta, and in that case, Quanta, or I'm sorry, uh, L.G. licensed its technology to Intel, the uh, computer chip maker, uh, so that Intel could use the technology and make chips, which it could then combine with other Intel components and, and sell those on the market. Um, in this, L.G. licensed Intel only uh, the right to. Use these chips with its own components, uh, did not give it the right to, uh, did did not convey the right for people further down the chain of distribution to then use the patented technology. So when Intel made its chips, sold some to Quanta, Quanta then put these chips together with other components to make computers and whatnot, Uh, LG then came and sued Quanta saying aha, you're violating our patent right because you don't have a license. We only licensed Intel to make the chips and use with their components. We didn't license downstream uses. Uh, In that case, the court held that there was patent exhaustion and that Intel, or or LG rather, should have gotten the full value of its patent when it introduced its product into the stream of commerce and then couldn't collect more payments as it went downstream in the distribution. Um, The court left open the questions though, or, or didn't address the questions of whether you can contract around patent exhaustion. And that's a very interesting question that's still left open after Bowman. Uh, the, the basic question is if the contract between LG and Intel had some, said something more specific, like you may not resell to others and your license is coextensive with your contract rights here, would the court have said, okay, you've contracted around, there's no patent exhaustion. We don't know. My intuition is probably the court would say, no, you can't contract around patent exhaustion in this case and would have left um, uh, Intel without any rights against downstream competitors or uh, um, customers, rather. But there's still, there's a coming conflict between contract law and patent law that I think uh, will have to be addressed by some future session of the court. Uh, And the reason for this is, is that we have certain things we allow patent owners to do under contract law, and then we have, standing on the other side, the patent exhaustion doctrine, which then steps in to suddenly take away the right to uh, condition patent licensing uh, uh, on downstream activity. So, for instance, courts uphold all the time the idea that when you buy a, a copy of, say, Microsoft Office, you're not buying that copy, you are licensing the software, right? It's all in the term of a software license, and this allows the copyright holder uh, or the patent holder, because many of these programs are also patented, to uh, say only you can use this, you can't resell it, that sort of thing, and courts uphold this. This is kind of a restraint on alienation that you would think might conflict with patent exhaustion. Likewise, courts uphold single-use restrictions, uh, especially if we're talking about medical devices. If a patent owner uh, sells a license, uh, to make a medical device and that device, they can restrict it and say the device has to be sold with a label that says single use only. So the hospitals use it only once. Now sometimes there's good health reasons to also not reuse, right? You're using needles and whatnot. is generally not a good idea. turns out stints should probably not be reused either. Uh, so there's some, uh, medical reasons for that as well, but courts have generally upheld this approach. And so the interesting question is, um, you know, how, how what happens when these come into conflict? For instance, what if someone grants a license for someone to use their patented product, but not to make it, right? So you can use my product that, you know, would that be enforced? I, I think probably so. What if there's a license that says you can use or maybe you can even make for your own? Maybe you have a, a chemical refinery or something like that, but you can't make and sell my patented process, you know, uh, product. I think, again, that seems like the sort of reasonable restraint that a court might uphold. And and then one might wonder, what if you have a, a license that says you're not allowed to resell, you can make you, you can, um, sell in certain circumstances, not others. Eventually we get to a point where contract rights and the patent exhaustion doctrine, I think will come into direct conflict and the court will have to address those questions, but, uh, we haven't gotten there yet. So, um, I'm going to leave it there for Monsanto at that point. And now um, I'm going to talk about the Myriad case. So the Myriad case uh, got a lot more attention and uh, potentially had the, uh, well, had and has the potential to be much more of a dramatic case. So uh, in brief, the lab Myriad discovered that the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes and common, uh, common mutations thereof correlate to increased chances of breast cancer. So after sequencing the human genome and a period of uh, research, uh, Myriad won the race to, be, to figure out what part of chromosome 17 coded for increased chances of breast and ovarian cancer uh, and then filed patents on these, this genetic material. Uh, the court took up the question of whether genes are patentable. For a number of years, the federal circuit had been saying yes, under the old case of Park Davis, where the court, where the federal circuit said, these are isolated and purified genetic material. That's perfectly patentable, but you can't patent genes as they exist in someone's body. And that for all practical purposes amounts to, you know, full gene patents. The court took up that question and held that naturally occurring DNA is indeed not patentable, but that synthetic cDNA, complementary DNA, is patentable. So a very interesting and I think very unclear question that remains after myriad is what the practical effect is going to be of this ruling. So under my understanding, the current science is such that to really work with genetic material in a lab, to do things like test to see whether someone has a mutation of the BRCA1 or BRCA2 genes, for instance, you need to amplify the genetic material, basically make copies of it. And that process, uh, uses cDNA, uh, has to use cDNA, so in effect, and Greg's going to actually go through the science, we decided ahead of time that since he's affiliated with John Hopkins and a doctor, he'll probably do a better job of that. Uh, but in a nutshell, uh, my understanding is the current science is that you have to use cDNA to be at all efficient in doing things like testing for genetic material. So the, the upshot might be that myriad and those like them have the, uh, will, will have very little change to their practical rights. They can still exclude others from doing these sorts of tests. And so that has two interesting then outcomes. One is that it encourages people, gives an incentive to go and find these correlations, which are very important to human health, right? We actually want researchers to be out there figuring out what bits of genetic material and mutations thereof correlate to what chances of disease. Uh, doing this can allow things, right? This is the reason that, for instance, Angelina Jolie, recently and very publicly, it's now known, uh, recently she uh, had a double mastectomy because she has mutations on the BRCA1 and 2 or genes that make her chance of cancer much, much higher, right? So this sort of information is very valuable. Uh, after myriad, I think there will still be an incentive to go after it. But it also means that after Myriad, there will be monopoly rights on testing. So Myriad charged about $4,000 per BRCA1 and BRCA2 gene test. And this means that for some people, right, it's expensive or or maybe they can't get the test. This is not a new phenomenon at all within the world of medicine, right? There are lots of cancer treatments, for instance, that may, because they're patented, cost up to, say, $60,000 a treatment. And we kind of say, well, hopefully the incentive of granting that exclusive patent is worth the cost that it means to higher prices to consumers for the 20 years during the life of the patent. So sometimes people act as if DNA is different in that way, since we have it in our body than, than say, chemicals. But uh, in practical effect, they're very much the same sort of thing. So I am just about out of time. So I guess I will um, pause here and only briefly note that my article that I wrote in the for the review goes on to note that myriad is a continuation of a problem of interpretation the Supreme Court has when it comes to saying what sorts of things should be patentable subject matter and what shouldn't. What should be patentable and what shouldn't be patentable? The Court has recently claimed that it is taking a textual position. I think that's in conflict with a history where historically uh, Congress has deferred to the Supreme Court and to the courts on making decisions about what sort of things will be patentable subject matter. Uh, and in those earlier discussions, uh, the court came up with certain exclusions to patentability that aren't based in the statute or the Constitution that don't necessarily make sense anymore, uh, and that Myriad was another missed opportunity to try to correct this, uh, this erroneous approach to patentable subject matter. But my time is up, so I, I will leave that... Uh, uh, for the maybe discussion later or for your uh, reading enjoyment.
2: Thank you, Gregory Dolan. Uh, so I, I guess I'll pick up words where sort of David left off about missed opportunities. And um, those of you who had a chance to read my article in the review um, perhaps saw that I am much less sanguine about the Supreme Court's approach to patents generally and I think that, you know, to put it frankly, they don't really know what they're doing. Um, and then in the next 15 or so minutes, I'll tell you what I really think. Um, so let me just, I'll adopt David's framework. I'll start with Monsanto first. And I don't really have much to add on Monsanto. Because I think David sort of did a good job covering it. And, in, in, and also because I think Monsanto is, of the two, is a much less interesting case. Um, so on the fact side, I would just add one thing. So the reason... Uh, Mr. Bowman kept going. You know, only went to Monsanto and their authorized dealers once, versus every time, right? Because after all, he had to buy the second generation of seeds. Um, the first one he bought under this uh, license, and he had to—he uh, uh, was not uh, allowed to replant it. But once he went to the local uh, grain elevator and purchased more seeds, um, he there was no longer uh, that license present there because a uh, local grain elevator was not um, uh, an authorized dealer of Monsanto as David mentioned. But, you know, why should it matter to Mr. Bowman where to go and buy? Well, the answer is actually fairly simple. Monsanto sold their beans at a premium, right? So they're Roundup Ready beans uh, that you could u- use much more easily than any sort of other beans instead of sort of pulling those weeds out by hand. They sold them at a premium, whereas the grain elevator was not able to charge that premium because by federal law, they're actually only allowed to sell seeds for commodity purposes, as opposed to for planting purposes. Now, of course they can't control what you do with them as you buy but essentially they can't advertise they can't uh they can't uh make their business model to sell it for non commodity purposes so they uh, for from the viewpoint of grain elevator all of the um, all of the beans cost the same and so Bowman went there and bought them at a lower fee and that's how he made his profit because he bought uh beans at a commodity price but actually got sort of the um uh beans with us with um uh, with, with those genes altered. So ultimately, I think David is right. So Monsanto is really not that interesting. Uh, court looked at the facts and said planting a second and third and fourth and fifth generation of beans is simply making new beans uh, from time immemorial. Exclusion doctrine will apply to the product that you purchase. So, you know, if you buy a new car and you drive it for a while and then you want to sell it, that car has a myriad of patented components. You, you know, GM can come after you or, you know, whatever car you happen to drive. Can come after you and say, "Well, you can't sell it because it has patented products." Um, You've bought the car; it's yours. You can do with it what you want, um, but you cannot rebuild a GM car without sort of getting licenses or paying for their, their patents. And so that that was not at all controversial. And so, uh, given the the court sided on those facts, uh, you know, ho hum. What is, what is interesting is these sort of uh, unanswered questions that David identified, and one particular one that I want to focus on is this sort of single-use restriction. There was actually, uh, about a decade or so ago, there was actually a case in the Federal Circuit uh, that the Supreme Court never took up called Malincrad, um, where this was exactly the situation. There was a device that was sold to hospitals, and there was a sticker on it that single-use only, and of course, because it was a patent device, it sold at a premium. And one hospital came up with this idea that You know, since it was not something that you actually used internally, this was not something you had to, uh, you know, had a great fear of being contaminated or so on. They hired a company uh, that would sort of clean up this device, refurbish it, and then you could use it for second and third time. Um, And, of course, the patentee was not happy about it because they were losing business. Instead of selling two devices, they would only sell one, and that would have used two or three times. And so um, they sued. And the federal circuit held um, that because it was sold under the single use license, that this was a valid restriction and uh, the patent exhaustion doctrine was inapplicable. And so that is still the law because the Supreme Court has never overturned it. And so David suggested that that maybe is correct, especially for medical devices. You, know, you don't want to reuse stents that you extract from somebody else's heart you know, and all sorts of uh, uh, ghoulish um, uh, uh, scenarios. What's interesting, though, is that in this case, in Monsanto, the federal government, though ostensibly siding with Monsanto and against Bauman, wrote in their brief that Mallinckrodt was wrongly decided, should be overruled, but this is just not the vehicle to do it. Uh, So whether or not these single-use restrictions actually can survive, given severe criticism uh, that Mallinckrodt received from the academy and now from the federal government... Uh, is not at all clear now, as a policy matter, it seems to me that at least in some circumstances they should be able to survive because again we don 't want people to reuse cardiac stents okay? uh, or we don 't want but other devices where so single use restriction may be simply as a, a, a not, not go towards the health and, and and public health issues but mostly towards profit. you know fine by me, but I think the court may take a much more skeptical view of that. So that question does remain open. Single use restriction does remain good law, but it remains shaky law given sort of um, fairly serious opposition to that Federal Circuit decision. And I think uh, Supreme Court left itself open the possibility of um, taking that up in a better case. The other question that's open with Monsanto is uh, something that also came up about uh, seven or eight years ago in the Federal Circuit. Specifically, the question of self replicating technology. So, there was this case uh, where uh, a drug Paxil was involved. And, drug Paxil, as it turns out, was developed in, in the federal circuit. And drug Paxil was developed actually several decades ago. Uh, but there were two particular chemical forms of it. There was an anhydride, so essentially, the, the molecule had no water bounded to it. And so, the, the, the molecule that uh, uh, Paxil consists of has kind of four components, and there was no water bound to it anywhere. And that, so that was discovered several decades ago, fell into public domain. But for whatever one reason or another, it wasn't particularly good as a drug. For whatever reason, so the company that discovered that molecule couldn't figure out how to put it into a pill and make it palatable to patients. So some years later, they discovered that if you introduce some water to it to make it semi-hydrate, so out of those four, molecule, four, com- four parts of the molecule, two of them would have a water-bound molecule to it, somehow it became more stable, more palatable to patients, easier to store, and so on. And they filed a patent on that one. Well, it turns out what happens is that when you put an anhydride molecule and a semi molecule next to each other in two separate open bottles, the water sort of evaporates, and it's kind of the molecules, essentially, they see their brethren with, this, or with two water molecules bound to it, say, hey, that's a more stable configuration. I think I'll adopt that, too. I'll suck out water out of atmosphere, and I'll change my own configuration without any human attraction. So kind of this wonder of chemistry. And um, the... The generic manufacturer decided, okay, well, this anhydride is in public domain. Paxil is a blockbuster drug. We're going to start making it, and we'll do our best not to violate this patent on, sem- on a semihydrate. Oh, but because of this sort of self-replication or self-change, um, the, drug, the patent holder filed suit and said, look, whatever you do in your lab, okay, you cannot avoid having at least one molecule in that pill be in a semihydrate form. It, it's just going to happen. And therefore, because our patent reads as semi hydro just one molecule, it doesn't say like any sort of quantifiable measure of it, you're going to violate our patent. And so the case was litigated before Judge Posner, stood as a district judge. He gave sort of 11 reasons why that patent is invalid. It was appealed to the Federal Circuit. Um, uh, you know, the Federal Circuit said, Judge Posner is wrong on all 11 reasons, but here's the 12th one why it's invalid. Um, and ultimately, it... Um, it held the patent to be invalid, but on a fairly strained rationale. And so, but that question again remains open. What happens if a bean from a neighboring field blows over to to another neighboring field where it cross pollinates with a uh, with a farmer's with a farmer's bean, and now the farmer unintentionally in, infringes Monsanto's patent? He doesn't want to grow Roundup Ready seeds, but because of sort of the wind, is, um, his his uh, field is now contaminated. And because generally speaking. Um, uh, infringement is a strict liability offense. Saying, "Well, I didn't mean to," is not a defense. At the same time, there's really nothing you can do to avoid that. So that sort of, that remains an open question. And again, Supreme Court in a footnote said, "We'll leave that for another day." So, and I think that's why I want to leave Monsanto and so I move to Myriad. And I want to start criticizing as from the from the very top. From the question presented, the question presented was, I think, as David said, "Are human genes patentable?" Well, that's a wrong question. And because the answer to that is obvious. No, human genes are not patentable. Everybody agrees with that. Uh, Myriad agreed with that. Everybody who filed a brief on Myriad's side agreed with that. Full disclosure, I did file a brief on the side of Myriad. And I agree with that. Human genes are not patentable. The problem is what Myriad had a patent on are not human genes. So contrary to news reports and contrary to New York Times had to say, they did not patent human genes in any individual's body. They patented separate molecules that look like human genes, but actually are not human genes. No, human genes are not patentable. But the, the real question is, are products derived from human DNA? Are they patentable? Right? And there are several. Um, so let me just take a, a few moments to go through science. Um, as some of you remember, or most of you hopefully remember from um, uh, high school and college biology, DNA is a double helix molecule, consists of four particular subunits, uh, A, G, C, and T, that are complementary. A goes with G, C goes with T. Thank you. Uh, And so you have these two strings which essentially uh, looks kind of like a zipper where A interlocks with uh, T and C interlocks with G. And depending on the sequence in that zipper, it twists in a particular way because some molecules are more or less hydrophobic or hydrophilic. And in a, in a natural state, they bind to proteins, so they creates a very complex uh, uh, three-dimensional structure. And the way sort of to think about it, after all, DNA is just an instruction code. DNA in itself doesn't really do much other than code for proteins that actually do the work. So the way to think about it is think of it as a, as a book, right? Uh, think of it as, of as, a, as war and peace. Uh, it's that, it is that long. Um, but the problem is, it's a book where other random words are interspread in it, sometimes in a different language, uh, in no particular order, right? And it's a book that's chiseled in stone. And if you want to use it, you have to have somebody go through, figure out which words are actually part of the and piece and which ones are sort of part of a random phone book. And then cut those words out, put it on a computer disk, put it online. So now that somebody actually can read it, do control F function, if they want to search for something, do cut and paste and so on. Now, the information ultimately is the same on the stone and in that computer disk. But you can use it for very, very different purposes. Whereas the stone essentially is unreadable, now uh, for, uh, you know, this information on a computer disk is, is readable, is researchable, and so on. And so ultimately, I think the question is, is what's put on a computer disk different from what's on the stone? And I think that depends on the way how you view DNA. If you view it as simply information encoding molecule, and information being different and open for everyone, then maybe that's you know maybe it's not patent eligible. But I don't. I view it as simply just any other chemical molecule. Where if, if you modify it, if you create sort of a new smaller molecule that's separate from all these proteins and other associated um, chemicals, it should be in fact uh, patent eligible. Ultimately, the um, the argument of the challenges, the argument of association with molecular pathology, uh, reduces to the following proposition. DNA is different. DNA is information. No other chemical molecules are information. And from our perspective, that's just wrong. And it's wrong in the following reason. Lots of molecules that circulate through your body carry information. So uh, a particular molecule binds to the outside of a cell, creates an intracellular cascade. That's information. It tells that molecule tells the cell what to do through chemical reactions proteins are information insulin that diabetics use to treat their disease is information it tells your cell to start doing certain things with uh with uh, with sugar in your blood and at the end of the day i would think that encouraging scientists to create biologic molecules that closely resemble or in fact are nearly identical to what occurs in the body should be a good thing should be encouraged because at the, if we don't and if we only give patents to traditional chemical drugs, then we'll have a following situation. We have a situation where better treatments that actually mimic what happens in your body, that are identical to what happens in your body, all of a sudden are not incentivized, but worse treatments that um, involve non natural chemicals um, that only mimic as opposed to sort of substitute for things in your body are incentivized. And I think that's the odd way to incentivize medicine. We would want to incentivize research that actually uh, corresponds to what happens in your body. So if myriad is ultimately correct, you know, if if this proposition that DNA is different, that it's about information and we cannot patent things that naturally occur in your body, then it raises serious questions about, well, what about insulin? What about other uh, products that, uh, that are meant to treat uh, certain diseases, certain deficiencies in your body? And if those become non-patentable, I think we run into a serious problem. One final word, and I'm uh, running out of time, is so, so I started with the question presented. I want to finish with the court's conclusion. The court spent a fair amount of time talking about how genomic DNA is simply cutting things out of the big molecule and, and presenting sort of the smaller molecule to the public. Is not patent eligible because there's no invention. They spent a considerable amount of time explaining why, in my view, unconvincingly, but then spent only a paragraph without any citations to much anything saying, but DNA, where you cut out those extraneous words out of that book, in my hypothetical, that is patentable. Even though, again, information-wise, if, if you're hanging your head on this whole information is different, information-wise, both molecules with extra words and molecules with those extra words cut out still carries the same information. The court never explains why this additional human intervention step, even though it preserves the exact same amount of information, is different. And so my major concern ultimately is how this tension, internal tension in the court's opinion, going to be resolved going forward in the lower courts. Because I think there's plenty of language in there to make it, to make it easy fodder for judges who happen to be more anti-patent than others to invalidate more patents based on what the court has said.
0: Thank you. Mark
3: Muller, thanks, Walter. Uh, and before I start, just one correction: James Swanson was actually the the first editor of the Cato um, Supreme Court Review and did uh, um, uh, great work getting um, the review um, off the ground. Uh, and I, I was fortunate for enough them. to to follow up on his uh, on his efforts and take advantage of them. Um, so. I'm going to talk about the Comcast uh, v. Barron case, which is one of two, um, two of the most significant class action cases um, decided by the court last term, um, and you know I think my discussion is going to sort of continue a theme um, that was started by uh, the other speakers, and that is uh, um, the court uh, uh, could have decided a lot. Uh, in this case, and ended up deciding not very much. Um, And this is actually part of a a pattern um, in the Supreme Court's approach to class actions. The Supreme Court's approach to class actions has kind of followed a a feast or famine pattern. So you'll have um, a decision or two um, that really kind of engage with um, some important open questions in class action law and, and sort things out. Um, and then you'll have a period where the court just simply leaves um, uh, further development um, to a kind of common law like process among um, the circuits. Um, in the last kind of feast period, before um, Walmart stores v. Dukes, um, was in the late 90s when the court decided um, uh, Ortiz v. Fiberboard and Amchem v. Windsor, these two kind of seminal class action cases, followed by um, over a decade of silence until 2011 um, uh, when the Supreme Court decided um, Walmart stores. And then we had another feast, um, this really rich decision that reaches in um, and uh, addresses a lot of um, important open questions in class action law. I think everybody had been hoping that in the wake of Walmart stores, the, the feast would continue. The court would um, uh, resolve um, a number of other open questions that it didn't get to address um, in Walmart stores. Um, Comcast raises uh, some question about whether the court is really committed to doing that at this point. Um, it ended up being quite a narrow um, decision. Um, Comcast uh, involved a proposed class action against uh, the cable television provider, Comcast. Uh, The complaint was uh, brought on behalf of more than uh, 2 million um, present and former uh, Comcast cable television subscribers in the Philadelphia area. Um, And it attacked the cable company's use of a so-called clustering uh, strategy in the Philadelphia area. So clustering... Um, is antitrust lingo for a company's efforts to concentrate its operations um, in a particular market. Um, And Comcast, it was alleged, um, had pursued just such a strategy in uh, Philadelphia through a series of acquisitions that were approved by um, antitrust regulators, by the way. Um, Plaintiffs alleged that strategy violated um, federal antitrust law um, because it uh, allowed... Um, Comcast to essentially monopolize, to gain dominant market power um, in the Philadelphia market. Um, proving an antitrust claim uh, requires not simply showing that the defendant engaged in anti-competitive conduct, but it also requires proving that this conduct injured class members by um, uh, uh, for example, inflating the prices um, of the goods they bought, resulting in measurable damages. And the plaintiff's complaint in, com, uh, in Comcast, of course, alleged that this was so. Comcast's clustering strategy um, allowed the cable company to obtain a dominant market position, eliminating competition and allowing the company um, to charge the entire class of Philadelphia-area consumers um, inflated prices Um, for their cable subscriptions. Um, The court in Comcast was asked to consider um, whether um, the certification of this um, vast antitrust class action passed muster um, under the standards um, set forth in Walmart. And in a 5-4 decision, um, in an opinion by Justice Scalia uh, and joined by the four other conservatives, um, the court... Um, sided with Comcast against uh, the plaintiffs. And for the majority, the trouble with the plaintiff's class action theory had its origin in the plaintiff's efforts um, to prove how Comcast's clustering strategy um, affected the entire class. Um, So to to understand the problem, uh, you have to rewind um, all the way back Um, to the trial court. Plaintiffs had proposed four different scenarios that explained how Comcast clustering um, had affected prices in the Philadelphia area. Um, Just to quote Justice Scalia, first, uh, uh, the theory was Comcast clustering made it it, it profitable um, for Comcast to withhold um, local sports programming from its competitors, um, resulting in uh, decreased market penetration uh, by direct broadcast satellite providers. Second, um, uh, plaintiff suggests well, Comcast activities reduce the level of competition from so-called overbuilders, which is simply a term for companies that build um, competing cable networks um, in areas uh, where an incumbent cable company already operates. Um, third. Uh, plaintiff said, "Well, Comcast clustering reduced the level of benchmark competition um, on which cable customers rely to compare prices. Fourth, plaintiff suggested maybe clustering increased Comcast bargaining power um, relevant, uh, relative to content providers." Um, The district court held that, based on the evidence, only one of these scenarios, the overbuilding theory, the theory that Comcast clustering had uh, deterred overbuilders or competitors um, uh, uh, from coming in um, uh, and uh, building competing cable networks. Um, The district court held that only this scenario could possibly support an award of damages on a class-wide basis. Um, at least the way the Supreme Court describes the district court's opinion, the idea here is that even if the scenarios, the other three scenarios um, uh, that plaintiffs had offered may have had some price effects in some parts of the Philadelphia market, um, they did not plausibly affect the entire market and so could not support an award of class-wide damages. And note, by the way, that's the way the Supreme Court frames how the trial court um, uh, uh, approached these different theories. Um, I have to say it's not entire, entirely accurate, but we have to kind of uh, analyze the court's opinion based on its interpretation um, of the trial court's um, uh, understanding of the record. Um, so, to connect this one surviving theory of antitrust impact, deterrence of overbuilding, um, to measurable damages incurred by the class. Um, The plaintiff retained a statistician, Dr. James McClave. Dr. McClave attempted uh, to quantify the damages to the class using a multiple regression that compared actual prices in the Philadelphia area with hypothetical prices that would have prevailed, um, but for petitioners allegedly uh, anti-competitive activities. And although his model's calculations yielded um, an estimate of over 875 million in damages for the entire class, the model did not attempt uh, to uh, isolate damages attributable solely to Comcast's um, deterrence of overbuilding. In effect, um, the damages figure that, uh, uh, that his study uh, reached reflected damages attributable to the cumulative impact of uh, Comcast's anti-competitive conduct as a whole, including but not limited um, to deterrence of overbuilding, including uh, as well possibly the other um, sources of uh, price inflation that I mentioned earlier. Um, That couldn't be proven uh, according to the district court on a class-wide basis. And it was this point on which the majority seized. It said if uh, uh, respondents prevail on their claims, they would be entitled only to damages resulting from reduced overbuilder competition, since that is the only theory of antitrust impact accepted for class action treatment by the district court. It follows, the court said, that the damages model must measure only those damages attributable to that theory. Because the model did not attempt to do so, the court concluded it cannot possibly establish um, that damages are susceptible of measurement across the entire class. Um, in the wake of this decision, the defense bar, and I, I think one thing that's really interesting about um, the, the way uh, the kind of popular press um, and the legal media approaches class actions. Um, and class action cases is the way that the different sides immediately after a class action opinion start spinning. Um, And immediately after this decision, you see both uh, defense firms and plaintiff's firms spinning this opinion. Um, And the defense bar has been vigorously arguing um, that Comcast is actually quite an extraordinary um, opinion, Um, that Comcast broadly holds that damages in a class action uh, must be susceptible of common, uh, to common calculation, to common proof. Um, um, if that's right, um, Comcast is a quite significant case. I mean, um, it has long been thought in class action law that individualized um, damages don't defeat um, class certification so long as liability can be established based um, on common proof. Um, and uh, there is certainly language in the Comcast opinion that you know supports the idea um, that the court now believes that um, damages also have to be um, proven based uh, on a common basis. I mean, it says uh, it, it, it says um, uh, plaintiffs must satisfy commonality of damages. For example, it uses that language um, quite often. Um, If that's right, as I said, Comcast is a significant case that uh, really reshapes, I think, our understanding um, of the requirements for certification um, in the damages class action context. Um, If that's right, courts must now closely scrutinize um, expert evidence bearing on the calculation of damages during the certification stage to determine its reliability um, as a method um, of common damages measurement. And the decision would seem to doom certification in uh, cases where modeling cannot reliably capture significant variations in damages um, from class member to class member. Um, In addition, uh, if you rely on some of this broad language in the decision that um, defense firms have been highlighting, uh, the decision seems to cast some doubt on um, a very common solution to uh, the problem of individualized damages um, in lots of uh, uh, class proceedings, and that is bifurcation, bifurcating trial um, into separate liability and damages phases, certi- certifying a class limited to common liability issues, um, and then leaving damages um, issues to individualized determination, um, kind of on a non class basis. Um, Some of Comcast's broadest language, um, again, kind of requiring commonality of damages, um, and its pointed refusal to recommend this bifurcation solution seem to cast doubt um, on this practice. Um, So Comcast seems like a very broad um, opinion, but I think it's doubtful um, that lower courts will read the decision so broadly for a number of kind of good reasons. Um, first, the plaintiffs in this case never challenged the idea that damages must be susceptible to class wide measurement. They just kind of um, uh, essentially um, waived arguments to the contrary. So, in many ways, a lot of the arguments, uh, the language in the opinion about the need to prove damages on a common basis, amount to statements of effectively stipulated law um, between the parties. Um, second, the plaintiffs in Comcast never requested bifurcation, um, and certification limited to common issues. They sought certification um, of both the the liability and damages phases of the class action, which opens the door to distinguish the case um, in in, uh, lower court cases where plaintiffs do request um, bifurcation. And that's um, uh, precisely one basis um, by which lower courts have distinguished. Um, the opinion, uh, notably, for example, the Sixth Circuit um, in Glazer v. Whirlpool, um, where the Sixth Circuit said, look, uh, Comcast was a case where plaintiffs sought to certify um, the whole thing, right? liability and damages phases. Our plaintiffs here um, are only seeking to certify um, uh, common liability issues, not damages. Um, And therefore, um, 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 this is a different case um, than Comcast. Finally, I think the result in the case um, can be rationalized without reference to the broader idea that um, perhaps damages also have to be proven on a class-wide basis. Since at several junctures, the court seemed particularly concerned that the expert evidence in the case simply failed to prove that the theory of liability in the case um, applied to the class as a unit. So for example, at one juncture, the court noted that because the McClave study um, did not attempt to isolate damages attributable to deterrence of overbuilding, for all we know, the court said, class uh, members in different counties in Philadelphia um, incurred damages resulting not from um, overbuilding, right? the liability theory that was certified, but from um, some of the other theories of price impact that were not certified. Um, uh, theories of price impact that simply could not be proven on a class-wide basis. Um, This language in the opinion, I think, uh, uh, allows Comcast to be viewed um, as one more case in which the plaintiffs simply have not shown that they can prove the existence of a single class-wide wrong that holds the class together. There's simply not um, enough proof that the theory of liability that has been certified um, impact attributable um, to deterrence of overbuilding actually affected um, the class as a whole. Um, uh, At any rate, all of this means that Comcast ends up being quite a narrow decision, um, limited to cases in which um, the statistical evidence offered um, by plaintiff's experts simply doesn't make an effort to connect the measure of damages to the actual theory of liability certified, Um, a quite narrow um, type of problem um, that's not likely to be replicated in a lot of other cases. Um, uh, Larger questions about um, whether uh, damages need to be proven based on common proof um, under uh, Rule 23 I think will have to await. another day
0: thank you we have time for questions Uh, as in earlier sessions please uh, raise your hand let one of our helpful people with the microphones uh, get over to you Uh, identify yourself uh, uh, keep it short and uh, make it a real question which means you've got to have the rising inflection at the end of your uh, sentence uh, yes, uh, in the center. Sure. Do we have the microphones? Okay.
4: Hi, my name's Bob Lawrence, and this is for Greg Dolan. I resonate with your view of uh, DNA as an information string, and you can put it on a CD. But say that I were to create an original song and put it on a CD and I copyright it, then if somebody were to excerpt a smaller portion and use it, uh, I would be due royalties. And similarly, if there was something in the public domain that I put on a CD, somebody could excerpt it, a smaller portion, and w- would be free for use. Why isn't DNA put on a CD Acceptable like that, public domain, since you can't patent genes.
2: So I think the answer is uh, twofold. I think first, um, the DNA that exists in the body versus the DNA that is that Myriad sought to patent um, is not the same. Uh, I think so. The DNA that exists in the body exists not just sort of as a CD, and then you just take out a smaller portion. Like I said, I think it's, uh, it's combined with other molecules such as proteins, such as it has chemical modification. Um, but more than that, in your hypothetical, the song can be played whether as a whole or as a portion, whereas the DNA that exists of, as a whole genome in your body versus the DNA that, you know, is excised and gets... But let me just take one step back. Turns out, what Myriad actually patented was not excised DNA. What the patented actually lab-created DNA that looks like an excised DNA. The court simply chose to read the language more broadly and saying, no, no. What they just do, is just cut out a piece of a chromosome. That's actually not true. But I simply engaged the court on its on its own terms. Um, but that just shows again that they they just don't understand the science. Uh, and if you either went to or, or listened to oral arguments, you when they try to analogize DNA to chocolate chip cookies. And baseball bats, uh, you probably would have gotten that feeling as well. But going back to the sort of to the, to the question at hand, in your hypothetical, you can play the song from beginning to end, from middle to end, from middle to middle, backwards, forwards, and so on. In re- in DNA world, you actually you can't read the whole sort of chromosome because again, it has a lot of nonsense sequence sometimes. So one strand is coding, sometimes the other. In fact, within the same gene, this sort of coding strands could flip. Uh, And so what you end up patenting is actually something that's usable or something that's completely non-usable in the body. And I think that's why the difference
0: over lunch, a Supreme Court correspondent was telling me that when he wrote up uh, what the Supreme Court was doing on patent law, he had one and only one objective in mind, which was to avoid getting a call from a patent lawyer saying, you got the facts wrong. Mm-hmm. So it's nice that even the Supreme Court can't quite uh, uh, avoid having to worry about the same thing. Um, there was a question uh, down this aisle
1: and nearly in the back. Henry Lord, quick question for
0: Doctor Dolan, Esquire, um, and it's a narrow one. On the Malincrot uh, request of the federal government for overruling, was that done at the invitation of the court or just in a spontaneous amicus brief?
2: Uh, I believe that sort of the, I you know I I believe so the the i um, SG filed and invited Amicus, but I'm not sure. But certainly, the Supreme Court didn't ask it to address specifically the Malindra question. It was just sort of an additional paragraph at the end of the you know, fairly extensive brief. So, certainly, Supreme Court didn't ask for views on that issue, but the federal government kind of made it known that they disagree with mail-in-draw. Yes, oh, second row.
4: I'm Herman Rossman, I'm an unaffiliated layman. Uh, just a question for Dr. Dolan. It's just a question, a technical question. Uh, when you refer to molecular change, are you talking about marking, DNA marking? Uh,
2: well, I'm talk- I mean, I'm talking about a variety, of, uh, a variety of modifications that DNA goes, uh, has in the body. I mean, some, um, some of those... Um, Subunits, right so at, at any, uh, they, can, they can undergo chemical they can may have chemical change, so for example, to signal to the cell mechanism that this gene in this cell at this time should or should not be transcribed, right Because genes are active at different places in different times. otherwise, we wouldn't have brain cells develop as brain cells and liver cells develops as liver cells because they all carry the same complement of DNA. We, cells just need to know which one which genes to transcribe. So and the way it's done is oftentimes through various chemical modifications. so you bind additional molecules to the string of dna to send a signal to the cells this is active portion that's inactive portion that's portion inactive now but it's going to be active tomorrow this will never be active in the cell and so on i mean yeah i mean you can sort of you can look at it that way but the point is so when you extract it and then you sort of create uh that sort of that piece that you, you seek to patent it's supposed to uh, have those markings absent questions. Uh, yes, over
0: here. Uh, this question is, is for uh, Mark Mueller. Uh, Mark, you, you mentioned briefly the, the Sixth Circuit uh, case, and then there was also a Seventh Circuit case that that uh, uh, the court sent back for consideration, and the court, like the Sixth Circuit, quickly reached the same decision uh, that it had the first time around, as I understand. Uh, does the fact that the that the Supreme Court sent those two cases back is that evidence that that it thought that it was doing something broader than than what you're saying and then do you think that either one of those two cases is a potential vehicle for the court to do something broader if 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 those cases I mean, seek cert
3: Yes, I think those cases are potential vehicles. I don't so the Supreme Court sent it by GVR it right after um is the technical term. I just don't think you can read that much into the court's decision to kick back pending cases um, to lower circuits um, after a decision like this. Um, moreover, I, I mean, I, you know, again, I think at the end of the day, the fact that plaintiffs simply didn't challenge, right, that, um, that damages have to be proven on a common basis really means that, you know, this is a principle that was simply assumed and not really litigated. Um, it strikes me, if I were a lower court, um, I I wouldn't feel bound by that portion of the opinion.
0: Um, <clears throat> you mentioned, Mark, that uh, the Comcast decision was spun heavily. Uh, uh- the reading that I did, and it may be that I read more the academic blogs or even the plaintiffs' lawyers' blogs, but uh, so, uh, the reading I did suggested that it was pretty narrow, and that uh, in a great many cases, uh, simply commissioning a better expert study and perhaps also tinkering with the boundaries of the class to uh, cut out neighborhoods that had not actually been harmed by the conduct or whatever would uh, get yeah, them past it.
3: I don't want to, you know, cast aspersions over the entire defense bar,
0: but oh, but go ahead. But, but, okay, but, go ahead.
3: Yeah. but um, and, and so there have been some careful analyses by some firms. But I've also seen a lot of, a lot of, you know, this decision may be much broader than we initially yeah. thought. So well,
0: so the, but you are right. I, I love it when people actually warn against the self-interest of the uh, legal profession because defense lawyers will be much busier if their clients uh, call them in for long briefing sessions, and. Um, generally get alarmed about the litigation risk whereas if, if they send a memo saying that not too much has changed uh there is less work uh, for I, I
3: will note that my old boss uh, miguel estrada who was the one who argued this case immediately after it was decided um talked to the press and said comcast the court has definitively held that um damages must be proved uh based on common evidence well i think there's a lot of helpful lam- language but that's an overstatement
0: yeah, well, the the wish is the father. I, I speak as one who has a lot of sympathy for the idea that the law ought to be that way. I just don't think the Supreme Court made the law that way uh, with, with Comcast. More questions? Um, could I ask a question of uh, David and Gregory, which is, we haven't said that much about Congress intervening, although... Obviously, it, it can and, and sometimes does uh, speak on patents. Uh, would it be helpful at all, or would would it be something? Uh, would it be grounds for panic if Congress took an interest in in these questions?
1: So um, that's an excellent question. I mean, I think generally, well, certainly the Federal Circuit doesn't like it when the Supreme Court takes an interest. Much of the patent bar uh, looks with a very jaundiced eye. I think academics uh, we can split in in all sorts of ways. Um, Greg's actually written an article uh, that would suggest a way that Congress could become involved. So I'll let him talk to that. But uh, I just I guess it's in response to that. And one thing I wanted to say is that um, this decision, I think, is really illustrative of why the Supreme Court's current approach to trying to decide what sorts of things are patentable and what aren't is really misguided. Because we're talking about. What are the molecular or chemical changes of DNA as it exists in the body versus once it splits apart, messenger RNA comes and matches up, then that can go out and code for proteins. And then in the lab, you can create synthetic complementary DNA from that messenger RNA. So this kind of how many angels uh, can dance on the the, the head of a pen, I don't think is that helpful in any practical respect, but that's the kind of debates we get down to when I really think the question should be, do we need patent protection to give us a, uh, a socially beneficial level of, ins- uh, of, innov- of determining these correlations between genetic material and diseases? And if we do, the court could say, this is the sort of thing that's patentable. In fact, the patent statute, although the court for many years has said discoveries as products of nature are not patentable, the patent statute's plain text says that... Uh, I've got it right here, that inventions and discoveries are patentable. And so we have this weird th- uh, uh, practice where the court's kind of backed itself into a corner and isn't taking a very practical approach. To the extent the court continues to do that, which I think is misguided, then I think congressional uh, fixes might be in order. and I'll let Greg talk about his suggestion.
2: So, um, yeah, I, you know, to pick between who should deal with court or Congress, it's a, t- it's a tough pick. Um, I recently sort of wrote an unrelated piece, when actually, but part of it was counting how many scientists there are in Congress, um, and I came out with something like two dozen out of 535 people. So I, I wouldn't place too much hope in them either. Um, but ultimately, what's interesting about Myriad is, is this. The issue is litigated on the question of whether or not these materials are even patent eligible. Can you go to the patent office and apply for a patent? Of course, that's only a first question, simply because something is patent eligible, right? So, for example, light bulbs are patent eligible. But I most likely cannot get a patent on a light bulb because, well, guess what? They've been invented a long time ago. And so everybody knows how to make them, or at least if you're in the business of making light bulbs. So, you know, uh, the, the mere fact that you're patent eligible, you satisfy the Section 101 of the patent statute, doesn't mean you actually get a patent. And interestingly enough, I think that is actually what's going to, what was supposed to happen with DNA I think DNA, isolated DNA or uh, genomic DNA um, that's separate from the rest of the chromosome or C DNA, I think they're all patent eligible because they're lab-created molecules. But do you get a patent on them? Well, in today's you know back when Myriad filed for it, which was about twenty years ago, Merriam's patent is actually about to expire. Uh, I think so. It was not an easy thing to identify to actually to get it to figure out what what is actually that gene. Today's day and age, given sort of the automated technology, any decent undergrads should be able to sequence a relevant gene. It's not that hard anymore. So I think they're patent eligible, but probably not ultimately s- subject to issues of a patent because they're obvious under Section 103 of the patent law. And I think that's how it should have proceeded as opposed to having to uh, taking, instead of taking sort of a scalpel, taking sort of a nuclear bomb to this and figuring out that none of this is eligible uh, for patents. And where Congress can get involved is because I think Ultimately, going forward at least, a lot of the genetic sequences are not patentable under Section 103, even though patent eligible under Section 101. I think ultimately where Congress can get involved is recognizing that it's still very laborious, easy in terms of like scientific, because, you know, uh, it's still very laborious. It's still very expensive to find those genes in association with diseases. And what Congress can do is say, look, if you come up with a new test or you come up with a new treatment for the breast cancer, we're gonna give you FDA type-based exclusivity just like we have for drugs. Not because of a patent, but because you're gonna apply for this test and get cleared the FDA and FDA will give you whatever number we'll come up with, five, seven, five, six, seven years exclusivity of being the only test on the market that does this thing. And that way, so the genes will be open free for everyone, but there's still gonna be sufficient monetary incentive to come up with new tests and new treatments that are based in genetics.
0: Okay, um, I see one more question, yes. Uh, Ray Lajeunesse, National Right to Work, Legal Defense Foundation. We litigate a lot of class actions. I wonder, Professor Muller, uh, is it possible we'll never have clear law for class actions and that the problem is Rule 23?
3: Um, I think that's a reasonable question. I mean, Rule 23 leaves a lot to judicial elaboration. On the other hand... Um, I'm not sure that we're going to go through another, you know, decade-plus famine in class action law. I mean, one indication is what the court's been doing in another deeply murky area, and that's personal jurisdiction. So, I mean, if, if for those of you remember, first year of law school, I'm actually teaching this to my first years right now. Um, in the '80s, the court issued a series of decisions on the scope of states' personal jurisdiction, um, and Those decisions settled some questions, they left some open questions, Um, they resulted in a a circuit split, a lot of litigation. The court just left it alone, right, uh, between the late 80s and just two years ago um, in a case called J. McIntyre v. Nicastro. Um, Now, on this terms docket, the court has taken up not only Nicastro, Nicastro. failed to resolve some of the open questions in personal jurisdiction. But the court hasn't left it alone. It's it's taken new personal jurisdiction questions. Um, and I think uh, it, it shows sort of a commitment to trying to get in and sort this tough area of the law out. And um, that may be partly the influence of Chief Justice Roberts as a background, as a commercial litigator, and I think may understand some of the problems that the uncertainty in this field of law is creating for courts and litigants. Um, And so I'm kind of tentatively optimistic that we're going to see the court coming back Um, to some of the big open questions in class action law. We're finally gonna get um, more clarity than we've had over the last 20 or 30 years.